I don't know, it seems like I should have been doing this on Labor Day, <laughs> but it's called Labors in the Vineyard. And it's one of Jesus' 39 parables. And it's one that I think a lot of people know, but I, I don't think they really understand the full meaning of this parable. And that's why I wanted to share it with you. Let's stand together for the reading of the word. It begins in Matthew chapter 19 at verse 30. And here's how it sounds. But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers in his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out. He went out about the third day and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right I'll give you. And they went their way. And again he went out about the sixth and ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why stand ye all here uh, all the day idle? And they said unto him, Because no man has hired us. And he said unto them, Go ye into also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right I shall, you shall receive. So when even was come, the Lord of the vineyard said unto his steward, Call the laborers and give them their hire, beginning from the last to the first. And when they came that were hired about the eleventh hour, they received every man a penny. But when they came to the first, they supposed that they should have received more. And they likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good man of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and the heat of the day. And he answered and said unto them, Friend, do I do thee no wrong? I do thee no wrong. Dost thou not agree with me for a penny? Take that as thine, and go thy way, I will give it unto this last, even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? So the last shall be first, and the first last, for many be called, but few chosen. Thanks, you may be seated. <clears throat> What's a parable? The Hebrew word parabole means to represent or stand for something. An illustration, if you will. A story beginning from a beginning being drawn for common objects and incidents to illustrate a higher truth. It's an outward symbol of an, of an inward reality. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So there's all of those things that go into what a parable is. Something that you can get because you see it going on in front of your face, and then you can draw a heavenly or a, or a, a or divine understanding of it. This morning's parable is entitled, Laborers in the Vineyard. Now, this can't get any more contemporary in 2023 because if you follow the news at all, you'll realize that right now the Teamsters unions are negotiating with UPS, one of the largest employers in the world. That's going to be a very interesting piece of negotiation. I, I negotiated many, many uh, union contracts called Taft, Taft Hartley contracts in my life. And my, my uh, attitude about contract negotiation was this. I negotiated every day with the people who worked, the 800 people who worked in our factory. 
Because if I didn't do it, if I didn't take care of the bathrooms when they complained about the bathrooms, you can rest assured bathrooms were going to come up during the contract negotiations. So I did all those little things that I knew would never have to come up in the contract, and it made just dealing with benefits and pay a lot easier. So that's what the unions are dealing with. Uh, Teamsters are dealing with UPS on those kinds of things. On the surface, this, prov this proverb seems to be a dispute over pay and hours. But there is a higher truth, and it's so much more important than just the obvious, as we read. So here's an, here's an overview of what we just read in the parable. The first group of workers were hired for an agreed sum of money, one day's pay. So a penny doesn't sound like much, but that's what a day's pay was in those days. The second group were unemployed, and they were standing in, quote unquote, the marketplace. This thing is still going on today. If you're not aware of it, you should be. Even in Flemington on East Main Street and the corner of Walter Ferran, there's a little group of men. You'll see them on the weekends. You'll see them early in the morning standing there. You know what they're doing? They're, they're day laborers. They're hoping somebody will come by and call them, put them in the pickup truck and take them and give them a day's work. Well, that's what this man went. He, he saw different people at different times, 9 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, 5 o'clock in the evening. And when work was finished at 6 o'clock at night, they all received the same pay. Now, this is something called the free, uh, free uh, enterprise system. Um, it basically means that the employer sets the wages, not the state. This man said, I'm a landowner. I've done right by all of you. I've given you what I promised. I, do, I give you what was fair for me. And that's what he does. So group number one, which was working 12 hours for the same wage as those who worked an hour, they were jealous and they were resentful. They had been paid just as they were promised. The meaning of the parable speaks to three biblical lessons. Number one, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Just what does that mean? That's what I want to share with you first. Secondly, talks about God's sovereignty. In other words, God will do what God will do. For some people, that doesn't seem fair, but it's called God's sovereignty. He's the king. And third, it talks about the fact that grace extends to everybody. God's grace extends to everybody. We'll go into these three things in some detail. Lesson number one, the first and the last. What did Jesus mean when he used that phrase, twice in the course of just one talk. He said, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. He was speaking prophetically to God's chosen people, the Jew. Romans 3, 1 and 2 asks this question, what advantage hath the Jew? In other words, what advantage is there being Jewish? This is the question Paul raises in the book of Romans. The whole book of Romans is about the transition from the Jews place with God and the Jews' mission with God and the Gentiles. Verse 2 answers the question, what advantage, what's the advantage of being Jewish? And Paul writes, much, every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. They were the voice of God. The prophets spoke the voice of God. It was the Jews who were given the authority to write this book by inspiration. There isn't a non-Jew that wrote any of these, these books. All 66 books were written by them. That was their privilege. With the rejection of Christ as Messiah, they lost the privileged place as those who would carry God's message of salvation in Christ to the world. 
The privileged went to the Gentiles. That was the non-Jews. The Jews were cut off from that role, and the Gentiles grafted in. So it was the Jewish people's responsibility. It was their privilege. It was God's gift to them to take the gospel of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ, and carry it to the corners of the earth. And when they rejected the Messiah, they lost that privilege. God hasn't given up on the Jewish people. You need to understand that. God hasn't replaced the Jewish people. You need to understand that. They are still, they still have a special place in his heart. And God has a purpose for them. But they no longer are the ones who are given the, the opportunity to carry the gospel. You know who's got that? Will all the Gentiles please raise your hands? Yes, you. You were given the gift and you're responsible for that gift. Now, I could refine my asking of who's the Gentiles, because you're not. You're Christians. This is illustrative of lesson number two, God's sovereignty, in that the person saved on their deathbed is just as saved as the person converted in their youth. Amen, somebody? A little louder, please. I've had the privilege to stand at people's bedside and lead them to the Savior. And I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, like the thief on the cross, thief on the cross, there's my Brooklyn coming out. Just as much as the thief on the cross, that those folks were just as saved as, as I was, who had been a Christian for, for decades. What a blessing. Salvation comes by God's grace, not good works not seniority in the church. Father God is free to offer salvation to any and all, and he chooses to offer it to all who will come to him at any time and any place. Paul writes in Romans that the shift from Jew to Gentile in God's plan would set into motion feelings common to many people. When, when, when God's plan changed, it was seismic. It was huge. It was like a spiritual earthquake. The world was going to feel that shake. In Romans 11, 11, Paul writes, because God grafted in the Gentiles, the Jew would be, quote, unquote, provoked to jealousy. Provoked to jealousy. Shakespeare called jealousy the green-eyed monster that feeds on itself. If you've ever experienced envy and jealousy, you know what I'm talking about. And everybody in the room at some point or another has felt that. Lesson number three, God's grace extends to everyone. So what are envy and jealousy? Because I'm going to focus in on them. Since in God's book, it seems to be a big deal. Envy, a feeling of discontent and resentment arising from thinking about what someone else possesses and the strong desire to have that thing for yourself. Jealousy, resentful or bitter rivalry, envious, jealousy, and its simply, sibling envy are not standalone emotions. In other words, when you have those jealous and envious feelings, they're not the only feelings you have. Other feelings come in and get involved. James 3.16, for whose envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Now we're going to expand on this in a couple of minutes. Envy and jealousy are more powerful emotions than we realize. And I've got some examples in Scripture about, uh, for that. Proverbs 27, 4. Wrath is cruel. Anger is outrageous. But who is able to stand before envy? 
Now listen to this. Envy caused Cain to murder his brother, right? Envy caused Joseph's brother to sell him into slavery. Envy caused Lucifer, the angel of light, to become Satan, the prince of darkness. Envy caused the high priests and, and, and their followers to deliver Jesus over to the Romans for trial and execution. Envy, jealousy. And, first, and 2 Corinthians 12, 20 and 21 says, Envy among believers is a source of real trouble for unbelievers and for the church. Has envy and jealousy been at work in your life or my life? We need to examine ourselves. Feelings of jealousy and envy can begin early in life. Childhood jealousy is the feeling in an older child when a new sibling is born into the family. Think about that. It can start that early. Attention which the older child once enjoyed is now passed on to the infant, and they don't like it. The old, older child may be told to love the baby, but watch out for those kids. <laughs> you wonder. Quentin Hyder, a medical doctor, says in the Christian Handbook of Psychiatry, quote, the root causes of jealousy or resentment are feelings of insecurity or inadequacy. We just don't feel good about ourselves. And if we don't feel good about ourselves, we won't feel good about anybody else. Jealousy sees with binoculars so that little things appear big, dwarfs grow into giants, suspicions become truth. When you're jealous of somebody, envious of somebody, a lot of other negative emotions follow that. And so you don't have good feelings about that person. There are six strategies I found in Scripture for fighting those negative feelings in God's Word and by His grace. First, the important thing is to recognize feelings of inferiority can lead to jealousy. You never know you've got a problem until you recognize you've got a problem. It's the worst thing in the world not to realize that you're sick and want to do something about it. You can't know you've got a, that you've got to do something about a problem until you recognize you've got it. We live in a motive culture. Feelings dictate a lot of what we do, who we marry, who we vote for, what we buy, and where we go. Feelings are not a good barometer for living. They can be misleading, they can be deceptive, and they can be wrong. And yet everybody seems to live by their feelings. I feel like this. I feel like that. Have you ever checked those feelings to find out if they're, if they're positive and valid feelings? Or do you just jump to your feelings? Well, I feel he'd done me wrong. Oh, really? Check it out. Listen to 1 John 3.20. If our heart condemns us, if our emotions get the best of us and condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. In other words, there are times when we don't feel like we're a Christian. Well, my friend and my brother and my sister, if you gave your heart to Jesus, if you asked him to forgive you of your sin, if you asked him to help you repent, if you asked him to come into your heart, he did that. If you asked him to forgive you of your sins, I guarantee that's what he did. He did because he has made a promise that if you confess your sins, he will forgive you of those sins. If you repent of those sins, he will help you. So it doesn't matter how down you got. What matters is Jesus will lift you up. And we need that. Because there isn't a person in this room, including the guy standing up here, who hasn't fallen at some time or another. If our heart condemns us that we're not saved, 
If our feelings tell us that we're the worst Christian that's on the face of the earth, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. The Holy Spirit can direct you to resources, the Bible, Christian counselors, Christian books, and prayer to show you that your feelings of inadequacy can lead to jealousy and that you can find help for your problem. I thank God for the people who over the years have come to me and asked me to counsel with them and help them through some difficult times. I feel so blessed and I feel so privileged and I thank you for giving me your confidence, which I would never violate. Second, recognize that feelings of jealousy can lead to sinful behavior. Here's James 3 again, verses 14 through 16. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish, for where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. So if you're harboring jealous feelings and feelings of envy, you're probably also harboring anger and resentment like those laborers did back there in that vineyard. And those other feelings can lead to other problems, other negative emotions, other negative thoughts. It's not a happy place to be, amen? And you don't want to be in that place. You want to be in a better place because the longer you stay in those negative feelings, the more you are going to become bitter. And there's nothing worse than living a bitter life because it's not the life that God has chosen for you. It's the life that you chose for yourself and you told God, don't bother me right now. I'm too busy being bitter. I'll call you when I'm not bitter anymore. I wonder if you ever picked up the phone after that. Third, have a realistic view of yourself. Listen to Romans 12, 3. For I say, through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly that you ought to think, but to think soberly according to, to as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. There are just people, I was listening to a sermon this morning about, about Pharisees. These were the people in the Old Testament that Jesus had the, the harshest words for. They thought of themselves as the best that could possibly be. They thought they could be nobody better. One of them even had the audacity, or should I put it in another way, the chutzpah, to, to say, these people are not like me. I'm so much better than they. I give my times, my tithes. I work. I do this. I do that. I'm, I'm so much better than these other people. Well, if you have that idea in your head, get rid of it. It's only going to tear you down. You will become humbled one way or the other. Think about what the culture has done to so many young women. Set unrealistic picture for themselves. They don't measure up to how th that they're not thin enough. They're always somebody smarter. There's always somebody who is more beautiful. There's always somebody thinner. There's always somebody more talented. They feel so bad. Our, our young women are being made to feel so bad. And they shouldn't be. What each of us should realize is that we are made by God. You are unique. You and you are alone, are one of a kind, and that you're precious in God's sight with all your strengths and with all your weaknesses. And don't dwell on your negatives. You're precious in the sight. You're a child of the king of the universe. No one else is just like you. And let him mold you into the person he created you to be. 
God isn't finished. You know, all of us Christians are like that little song, that kid song. We're Christians under construction. You'll never get out of that. You're always being refined and redeveloped and molded by the Lord. And God wants you to be the best you can possibly be as he created you. And that's a constant process. It's not something you do on a Sunday morning and say, well, I did my thing for the week. Hey, If you think you've done your thing for the week just by being here, you're sadly mistaken. i got to tell you something else. You're missing out on so much more that God has to offer if your walk with the Lord is day by day, every day, in every way. Fourth, recognize you've been given special, special gifts from the Lord, 1 Corinthians 12.4. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. Our individuality, when used in concert with others, creates a beautiful harmony. The best of the church is when it's in harmony one with another. And that sound is beautiful to the ears who come in contact with it. Under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, the church is an orchestra that fills the earth with the sounds of peace, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, love, and truth. Play your part. Put your giftedness to work for Christ. And number five, learn to be content. Philippians 4.11, not that I speak in respect to want. I have learned, Paul says, whatsoever state I'm in, therewith to be content. What a tough word that, I, that idea expresses. People are not content. People are constantly looking for self-actualization. The ability to climb the max mountain. Oh, I did that. Now let me move on to something now. There seems to be this sense of, of, of not, we're not satisfied. We seem to be getting jaded as a country, as a people. We just don't seem to be happy with our state. And, and the Lord says, look for ways to be happy in your state. Look for ways to find peace and contentment in the things that you have right now. Life is fleeting. It goes by so fast. Why are you wasting your time to be something you're not yet? Work towards that and find contentment in the labor. Because God is sovereign of your life, he has intended things for you that he has not intended for your sibling or your friends or the, or the person sitting next to you in the pew. Again, you are unique. God's plan for you is God's will for you, not for somebody else. God's plan for somebody else is not God's plan for you, necessarily. God's plan for you is his best for you. You want God's best? Be a laborer in his vineyard. Work towards those things he has for you. Don't just expect they're all going to be falling into your lap. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, the Bible says. That doesn't mean that you have to work to have salvation. It means once you're saved that you want to work to be the better you that he's intended for you to be. Contentment is learning life is a gift and not a right. Boy, how many times do we hear that? My right's this, my right's that. I'm left-handed, am I left out? Everybody else is worried about their rights. Well, life is a gift and not a right. Lesson number six, learning to submit to God's plan for your life. And I'll leave you with these thoughts. Let the Holy Spirit guide you each and every day. Listen to his still, small voice. Go into his word. Let God's word direct your thoughts and your feelings. Are you in God's word every day? Are you opening the book? 
That's where the power is. That's where the answers are. That's where the peace is. That's where the joy is. That's where the contentment is. That's where it all is because that's the way God planned it. It's between the covers of this book. Let godly counselors challenge and encourage you. Don't be afraid to talk about your issues with somebody. But make sure when you do that, they're going to give you godly counsel. And make sure when you do that you know that they're not a person who listens to you and then behind your back tells everybody what you said. Avoid those characters. And so let godly counselors challenge and encourage you. That's why they're in your life. Uh, brother, uh, Deacon Brother Kiskerno uh, often says his favorite verse is iron sharpens iron. You're right, Jeff, it does. Let prayer be your constant companion and let the Lord remold and make you more like himself every day and on your end continue to be his faithful laborer in his, lab in his vineyard for your life. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity we have to go into your word and see that it marries up to our lives and to understand that your word is not antiquity, although it is true in antiquity as it is true today. We pray, Lord, a blessing upon all of us who have heard the word today that's gone out from this place, whether it's inside the meeting house or outside the meeting house, that we would be challenged to be faithful laborers in your vineyard, that we might reach others for Jesus Christ. We should not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's our very reason for being. It's why we breathe and why you continue to give us breath. Pray all these things in the name of our Lord, Savior, and soon coming King, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.